Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. Season three of the podcast brings you interviews from the greater Kansas City metropolitan area. For those of you who are new to the podcast, more information can be found on the website culturium.com, that's C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M.com, or on Instagram at DRJ Podcast. A reminder, the podcast is absolutely nonprofit and free of advertisers and lobbies. Before we begin with today's episode, here's a quick rundown of what Kansas City is known for. Kansas City is officially nicknamed the City of Fountains. Kansas City has 200 fountains, one more interesting and beautiful than the other. In other words, only the City of Rome has more fountains. Kansas City is also known for its famous American football team, the Kansas City Chiefs, who won the Super Bowl against the San Francisco 49ers in 2020, for example, and whose famous quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, never ceases to make headlines. Another point of pride for Kansas City is its barbecue. In Kansas City, we slow smoke our meats, which include pork, beef, chicken, turkey, lamb, and fish, and we serve it with a thick tomato-based sauce. You might know pulled pork or brisket or ribs. These are all part of barbecue. And Kansas City is known as a hub for the best barbecue in the United States, with many well-known restaurants specialized in serving barbecue in the area, including Joe's Barbecue, a restaurant that often appears in the top three recommended restaurants for barbecue in the country. And then there's jazz. Originally, jazz started as a way for African-American slaves to express their musical traditions in improvisational form. It is difficult to define jazz, and I think I would not do it any justice to attempt. So I will let the expert speak instead. Today's episode is entitled Jazz, and my guest is Clint Ashlock, the artistic director of the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra. Clint is a trumpeter and composer. He recently performed as a solo artist at the first jazz education festival in Shanghai, China, and at the International Trumpet Guild Conference in Sydney, Australia. His style has been influenced by jazz legends such as Duke Ellington, Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, or Thad Jones, and he has performed with world-renowned artists such as Aretha Franklin, The Temptations, Clark Terry, or Natalie Cole. Welcome, Clint, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be able to speak with you. Well, it's, it's an honor to be asked to speak. I, I really appreciate it, <laughs> especially about Kansas City and jazz, two things that uh, I'm very, very passionate and excited about daily. Mm. So. So Clint, how would you feel about beginning with a, with a lesson on jazz in general, first and foremost, and then we'll go more specifically into Kansas City jazz and the more sociocultural aspects of jazz? Sure. Uh, how deep is an ocean? You know, I guess that's a tune as well. Um, but boy, to, to give sort of a broad overview and maybe narrow it down to how it pertains specifically to Kansas City and our tradition that we have here. You know, like you mentioned, jazz music, it started in New Orleans out of a three kind of types of music. I think you can sort of uh, look at is, is feeding directly into jazz. You know, you've got the, the blues tradition, uh, which is 
it's a communication blues music is, is is all music is communication but blues music was communication uh specifically you know you mentioned music that came out of slavery there are a lot of different sort of i guess you could say genres but that seems to be a little academic but you know you have spirituals which were about the creator and then you have songs that were work songs that would be done to kind of pass the time and to build um, togetherness uh, you know in these horrible situations and then there was blues which was usually done at the end of the day that was communicating sad situations you know the the kind of the unspeakable things that were going on but done with rhythm and with spirit and with soul in a way that kind of uh well the great albert murray the writer albert murray he said that blues is a is is like a vaccine it's like the smallpox vaccine right you you give a little bit of smallpox so that you can take the smallpox away and there would be songs and lyrics that would be sad and 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 troublesome but the rhythm that would be added to that the, this rhythm that we call the shuffle rhythm imbued so much positivity that it was like taking the blues and and flipping it on its side to make a blues situation uh more positive so um blues as, as a music has a lot of qualities in it that we see in jazz namely it's it's vocal music it's it's human music um so you hear a lot of notes that are in the cracks of the diatonic scale you know, where you have do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, right? Well, the human voice, bah, it can go from the lowest note to the top note with no, you know, like on a trumpet, I'm kind of stuck with the notes that the trumpet gives me, you know. So the the timbral aspects of the blues, do, de, do, the notes that are like right in between in the cracks. Um, and then you know, you've got the the human experience aspect of the blues, which is this idea of storytelling. Um, so that was, you know, one of the things that, that, that fed into jazz. The others being uh, in New Orleans, you have a great brass band tradition, the instruments, marching bands and different things with trumpets and, and trombones and, and clarinets and, and all of that. And in the marching, like the marching bands, you would have these songs that they would play. I mean, everything's a parade in New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. And the the march rhythm, doom, 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 one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, that kind of rhythm, somewhere along the line, a drummer decided instead of playing bass drum, doom, 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 like that, a drummer would play boom, 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 but don't boom, 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 but don't boom. And they would push the fourth beat and they call that the big four. And that rhythm like sparked something, you know, rhythm always sparks something a little exciting in humans. And, uh, and that rhythm set the, the musicians off where they wouldn't play the melodies. They would improvise and ad lib on the melodies a little bit. And then, and then you also had ragtime, which was such a popular music in the, in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And those syncopated rhythms where the notes are on the offbeats instead of bum, 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 you'd have bum, 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 like some of the notes would be syncopated on the offbeat. And early jazz was just kind of this, I mean, not to be too cute with it, but a kind of a gumbo of all these different ingredients kind of put together. 
and that those little improvisational aspects of it, like in blues where Robert Johnson would sing a melody and then he would respond to it with his guitar. Well, that call and response thing that also came out of long, long histories of tradition, European and African and, and world tradition of music, call and response, those little responses would be more and more, uh, would be improvised by these uh, musicians you know, in the context of this brass band ragtime kind of blues tradition. And it was from those little snippets of improvisation that you get Charlie Parker and John Coltrane with these 15 minute long flights of improvisation that we, we know of as jazz today. So that's a lot. You asked for a history lesson. I gave you a dissertation, I think. But, you know, I think anybody who wants to understand anything, knowing what happened before it is really helpful. And those things are what jazz was sort of born from. And, and a lot of other components obviously changed the direction of the music many, many times over the last hundred and, I don't know, five years or so or more, um, but certainly since recorded jazz in 1917. But that's, that's sort of, you know, where you can trace it back to. Mm -hmm. And if I could just ask one follow-up question. So where would you place swing? So swing, I mean, to me, swing was kind of the natural progression of everybody else catching up to Louis Armstrong. So there's a great recording that you, you can find on YouTube of Louis Armstrong playing the song Dinah. And this song was a popular song. And when, when people would would sing this song i mean there's a it's a little later but there's a recording of i think bing crosby doing it that you can listen to and of course bing was a great singer but it, it's done very straight Dine, no is there anyone finer in the state of carolina you know you can almost hear the banjo chink 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 or something like that with it and when lewis armstrong did this song and stardust and, and a bunch of other things he relaxed the phrasing so that it wasn't so dee da 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 dee da. He relaxed it so it was like Dinah, is there anyone finer in the state of Carolina, baby? Anything you know, show to me, Dinah. You know, it's like he's. Imagine, if you will, you're in a you're in a a, a bar or something. And two people approach you to have a conversation, and one person comes up to you and says. Hello, how are you doing today? It is very nice to see you. I like the weather today. Do you like drinks? I like to drink. Or someone coming up in, to you and saying, hi, could I sit here? <laughs> you know, would you mind if we, I don't know, maybe that, well, okay, that's a bad example, but I'm not very good at talking to you. You know, a conversational uh, no, but I get it. I do get it. robotic phrasing. So Louis Armstrong started doing that in 1916, 1917, 1918. And everybody else was playing this kind of straight style. So if you check out the recording of Dinah, there's a trumpet player that plays right before Louis Armstrong plays. And he's playing like, and it's really cool for 1920 or whatever. But then Louis comes up and he plays this relaxed, he takes his time. The pacing is beautiful. It's relaxed. And, you know, Armstrong was kind of notorious for making people frustrated that they couldn't play like him and they would either quit or they would kind of participate in his vision. And that relaxed phrasing is how you get away from uh, 
kind of the straighter, more on top of the beat phrasing of the of the 1920s and the 1910s, and you get into swing. That coupled with what happened here in Kansas City, I would say that Louis Armstrong and then the the innovations that were happening here in Kansas City really created the swing era. Let's just hold off on Kansas City for one more second. I promise yeah, sure. I'll let you talk about it. I, no, I no, just, no. You just made me fall in love with, with jazz all over again. I, I, I'm i not <laughs> a musician, so some of the stuff you talk about goes over my head, but I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face, just just sucking it all up and and, 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 and falling in love with all of it. So. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll have some experts as well listening to this who will enjoy it on a, yet another level. So with jazz, what puzzles me, and again, you know, I play the piano badly, <laughs> so I can kind of read music, kind of count, kind of just basics. <laughs> um, I can't. How do you... <laughs> How do you explain jazz to kids? How would you approach teaching jazz? You know, I, like I said, I'm a consumer of jazz and enjoy it and find it exciting and pleasing and all the things you say resonate with me. I get it, but I could never um, feel it like you. And so, so how would you, for example, I mean, not to me, obviously, <laughs> but to a musician, how do you bring a musician to jazz? Well, I mean, I think the, the thing that everyone has to do with any kind of music that they want to participate in is the first thing that you can't ever get away from is you have to listen to it constantly. And you have to listen to it both for enjoyment, but also, you know, it's almost, it's, it's not a sad fact to being a musician, but I think that if you listen with an analytical ear to anything that you're listening to, you're going to, you're going to learn how best to participate in it musically. I mean, the first thing you have to do to, to want to play it is to fall in love with it. If it doesn't resonate with you, it's not something you're going to want to play if you're a musician. But if it does resonate with you and you're curious about it, I think that curiosity and that that kind of inner drive, it's, it's, it's almost an intangible quality in people that choose to play jazz or choose to, you know, only play Baroque music or only play Bach or, or, or anything like that. I think there's just something that takes hold in you. And then as a curious musician, you just seek out how to do it. I think forcing the music on somebody that's not ready to participate in it is not going to yield a very healthy relationship with the music. So I'm, I'm not trying to cop out by saying someone who wants to play jazz is naturally going to learn how to play jazz on their own, but I haven't really met anybody that that is not the case yet, you know. Mm. Now, once that happens, listening to it, you know, with these kind of open ears, just this innate kind of puzzle solving nature, that's the thing that you want to encourage in a student uh, so that they you know, okay, here's a recording. Listen for the melody. What is the melody doing? Listen for the improvised melodies. What are they doing? Listen to the uh, harmony. What are the chords? What do they sound like? Um, how do the chords, uh, how does the soloist traverse the chords? Do you hear the way that this note fits with this chord? And, and then you go to the piano and you demonstrate it. You play a chord and then you play different notes, 
you know, that are part of the chord and okay, well, this is how this fits. Well, this is how this note resolves from this chord to this note in the next chord. And, and this is how you delay those resolutions or heighten the resolutions with dissonance or, or just completely obfuscate the harmony completely, you know, totally and play outside of it. This is a strong melody. This is what's happening rhythmically. Listen to the drums. What are the drums saying? What style is it? And so it all comes from the listening experience. And I think that jazz music is best done in a community, whether it's a very small community of a couple people um, or having, you know, a mentor or a teacher or a series of those types of people. Because the beauty of abstract art, art in general, but especially abstract art, is that it allows the, the viewer the perspective of the creator, right? And so if I go hear a great musician or I go look at a great work of art, I have the privilege of participating on a, on a very small observational level of the way that artist sees the world. And, and it broadens my perspective of the human experience by just a little bit, you know, like just a, a few in photography, you know, we talk about like the, the perspective, right? Is it a wide angle lens? Is it zoom lens or whatever? And, and by participating in art, we broaden our perspective by just a, a little degree. You know, I maybe didn't live the life that Billie Holiday lived, but I'm a human and I can feel emotion and I can hear the emotion that she put through her music, you know, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with with Walter Walter Benjamin. He talks about yeah. the aura, right? So you get to yes, yes. the aura of this work of art or the music or the musician. So yeah. Yes, absolutely. That. And and so when you're learning how to how to play jazz music or or any other idiom or medium, when you can learn together with others and from others, that's such an integral part of development. Mm -hmm. um, so listening. And then communing with others, I think, is like the next step after falling in love with and, and desiring to, to play that kind of music. And then from there, you know, there's, you know, music nerd, music nerdery that I could get into. But um, that's, I think that that's a really important process uh, to experience throughout your life as, as a musician, as a jazz musician, as an artist. So let's go a little bit music nerd on on, on that. <laughs> sure. So, okay, so now you're a jazz musician. Um, how do you judge now the quality of jazz? So if oh. you're a club owner and you're sort of trying to hire musicians or if you're a critic or you're um, whatever, a scholar or anything where you're hiring a band member, how do you judge now good jazz? <laughs> Well, you're sure speaking a jazz musician's language because we sure are some judgmental people um, <laughs> a lot of times. There is part in the patriarchal nature of this word, but there's a craftsmanship that has to, has to happen. It's a multifaceted craftsmanship. The professional jazz musicians, good, great, legendary jazz musicians have, have acquired through hard work. <laughs> if you're a longtime player or listener or both you you can identify pretty quickly mm. i like the analogy to modern art because i think it's the same yeah. it's the same yeah. type of of analysis you can enjoy modern art just because 
But you can also stand in front of modern art and say, okay, what is this? Why is this great? And to understand it really on a different level, I think you then have to understand uh, strokes and you know techniques and uh, you have to understand the composition, et cetera. So- Absolutely. And so there's, there, there's a, you know, a melodic structure and, and an ability to improvise notes where certain parts, certain notes in a chord happen on strong beats of a measure or, or the way that one chord, you know, melodically will resolve into another one. But, but it is, it's, it's like, for me, it's no different than, I don't know, say you, say you go play golf with someone or you, you go play basketball with someone and somebody might take a swing on a, on a hole and, and just, ground it like through the grass with a hideous looking swing and somehow it rolls over some dry grass and and they get a hole in one but you can look at their swing and tell that they're a terrible golfer or somebody shooting a basketball you know they might be on the wrong foot and they might have no balance and somehow they luck out and bank one in off the backboard and they they figure out a way to make like one shot go in but you can tell that that person can't play basketball you know and I think that like for for a musician it's it's the same sort of Mm -hmm. you can observe it almost immediately just like you said with art but I mean specifically you know once you once you get past that you know is the person have a command of the it's a command of the language Mm. you know if i went to well i mean let's use germany for example where i've been a few times and my german is as horrible uh as it can be i mean you know i even pronounce my last name in such a way that well you know already yeah like it, it yields it yields a bad uh even though my last name is um scottish so well, you know, my, my kids, my kids got a kick out of, you know, telling, you know, me telling them who I was interviewing. Who are you? <laughs> it's a stage name. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I mean, if I tried to speak a, a, a language that I can't speak, you immediately know that, that I can't speak the language. And I would say that it's the, I mean, music is a language. Jazz is a language. It's the syntax of a language. If you spend a lot of time listening to it, you can you can obviously tell. Now, there's also something a little a lot more subjective, which is intent and artistic viability, right? And that is, you know, what is this musician saying? What is that artist saying? Are they a, a master craftsperson, but are not saying anything that emotionally resonates with you? Mm. That is a much deeper, more personal thing. But just like with art. And especially or modern art, or literature, right? I mean, I, yeah. I come from literature, so that's where I can really identify. But yeah, absolutely. Poetry, yeah, right? yeah. There are there are great writers that they're technically proficient and clever and wordsmiths, but if it doesn't resonate with you, or or more importantly, with a with with the majority of its readers, then it's a I think that that's. <laughs> Yeah, right. And there's scholarly jazz too, music yeah. like ways that is done for demonstration or 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 archival purposes or whatever that could be, you know, technically brilliant, but but not capture that humanity of it. You know, it's always said with people um, like Count Basie or Sweets Edison or Miles Davis, where they could you could feel, you know, the weight of the world in one note. Mm. And that kind of artistry is elusive for sure. 
but still part of the Oh, I hate to use the word judgment. I was kind of joking earlier, but but it, it's part of that judgment as well. Mm-hmm. So before we go on, I have to ask you about one more thing, just out of curiosity and because I, I, I'm fascinated by this. So you mentioned New Orleans uh, jazz and New Orleans music in general. Um, a few semesters ago, I taught a class where we focused a few lessons on New Orleans and I showed the students second lines. Mm. And wow the reaction i mean talk about the reaction i got out of them this was i mean there were student cr- students crying there were you know so, i mean it, it just really touched them would you mind just very quickly talking about second lines and how those um came about and and the type of music yeah i mean i'm not being a, a new orleans musician i mean i'm a little embarrassed to try and like just in but <laughs> yeah i mean so the tradition of it is that the the second line is people in a in a in a parade in a funeral parade or that enjoy the celebration of life the joy the music the dance of it and i mean you see in some parades i mean the second line is just it's 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 almost larger than life and i don't think that's ironic at all i think it's you know with the flambeaux and the parasols and all that stuff and the the attire just this this observation of the life of life mm-hmm. the experience of it to me the thing that's always been really brilliant about second line music like the second line of a, of a funeral march is a hymn like just a closer walk with thee right and it's done very slowly and somberly and you can feel the the mourning in the in the in the loss and then the second line kicks in in that rhythm just like with the blues like i mentioned earlier with it was the rhythm that turned the sad music on its side and that that rhythm infused with something that right beforehand was do 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 Dum, da, dum, da, da, dum. You know, and then I can't really sing, but if I played my trumpet into the microphone, it would be horrible. Um, you know, and so it's that that relentless positivity of the human spirit that's what second line kind of that's how it resonates with me it's just this the celebration of the the fleeting opportunities we have you know on this kind of earthly world i mean it's it's music and it's joyous but it it comes from a much deeper place that we all experience together mm-hmm. you know i mean the second line is coming for all of us you know nobody has yeah. escaped it yet and so we might as well participate and in, in, in let that joy of being kind of wash over us. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. And then, I mean, you know, like second line is like kind of a pop culture kind of style with, with great practitioners, legendary ones like Trombone Shorty and, and the Rebirth Brass Band and, and all these different, you know, musicians that, that, that kind of funky, kind of joyous thing i mean that's the tradition that it comes out of and it's beautiful i listen to it all the time but it's that more spiritual aspect of it and especially with music coupling you know rhythm to to Mm -hmm. sadness to Mm -hmm. to make the sad 
happy again. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a beautiful uh, aspect of our kind of collective human spirit. Beautifully said. Thank you. Sure. So let me move on a little bit and let's talk about the sociocultural aspects of jazz before delving into specifically Kansas City jazz. So in his book, The Outsiders, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the sociologist Howard Becker, but he speaks about jazz and how much like smoking marijuana, the mere association with jazz in the 1960s would place both the musician and the spectator into a deviant group and and label both as quote unquote criminals. Then he has a later book called Art Worlds and it was published in the 1980s. And he continues to develop his theories about the effects of labeling as as seen through the context in which artists create and work. And in other words, as a musical form, jazz broke away from the norm and from obeying the rules, thus making (laughs) jazz musicians and those who listen to them a group that if you see it through Becker's theories, there are those who are on the right side of the law and order and catch criminals. And then there are those who commit the crimes and jazz, the jazz world would belong to the latter, along <laughs> with marijuana users and students, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is how has jazz both created a microcosm, a little world of outsiders and how has it contributed to cultural cohesion to a sort of co-understanding of different social groups well first of all thanks for introducing becker to me i don't know how in the world i haven't come across that but i'm going to devour that later so my short answer is that jazz is music for everyone Like jazz is a universalist kind of music because it's so much in our very kind of non-binary world that people seem to really, really want to turn into, you know, a one or a zero today. Jazz is really like pulled from, especially jazz music in the 21st century, it's pulled from order and it's pulled from chaos, right? There's like, and when I say chaos, I mean improvisation and creativity in and of the moment that is fueled by emotion, fueled by observation, and fueled by kind of a reaction to the world around you and the people around you. But on the other hand, jazz is full of order because unlike some (laughs) views of democracy uh, that that don't seem to work so well, uh, jazz music only works well Mm -hmm. if everybody is paying attention to everyone else and and allowing for everyone certainly in the group in the musical group to speak and to be heard and to to respond Mm -hmm. to that perspective with empathy and then to participate in a dialogue as opposed to sort of talking at each other all the time and there's no jazz without equity (laughs) yes absolutely i mean you could define jazz as equity with Mm. empathy going back to you know one of your earlier questions i mean one way that you can certainly judge jazz music that isn't happening is 
if the people in the band are not listening to each other and are mm-hmm. just saying what they were going to say when they left the house, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm going to play this solo over this song and I don't care if the drummer decides to start playing in three, four or whatever, like I'm going to barrel ahead. That happens a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's not good. I mean, it's objectively, there's so much not good with it on a musical and then on a deeper, you know, personal human level. So sure. I mean, there has to be like order there. There has to be respect. There has to be listening. It can't be rampant chaos, but without the chaos of improvisation and spontaneity, you don't get the spirit of jazz music. And um, so, so there's that. And then there's also the order of like constant practice. So improvisation to, I used to ask my, my non-musician major classes Uh, I taught like a jazz appreciation class for about 14 years. I used to ask them to define what improvisation was. And the overwhelming response was you make it up as you go along. And that's kind of right. But if you just, if you think you can make up anything, like there used to be a TV show in the United States called MacGyver. Do you know this show? I do. I was a MacGyver fan. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I used to watch with my dad all the time. And like MacGyver, you know, MacGyver could make a, 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 a flamethrower like hang glider out of some gum and a paper clip and some <laughs> underwear or something. And well, okay, so does that mean that I could make that out of those components? Absolutely not. MacGyver could make that stuff because ostensibly, even though they didn't show it on the show, really, you know, he understood aerodynamics and pyrotechnics and physics, and he studied all of those things. Otherwise, you can't just make stuff up. You have to have a basis of, of knowledge. In jazz music, you can't be a successful improviser if you haven't studied the fundamental components of music, like melody, harmony, rhythm, form, you know, intonation, uh, the craft of playing an instrument or singing. Um, so, th- so, so that's on the order side of things. But if you don't have improvisation and human inflection and in, in, in that sort of thing, uh, you also don't have jazz music. So I think, and- I'm not trying to get off base with you, but I think that jazz is actually an example of the way like we could all be better together, whether you're a deviant or a, I don't know what Becker calls the other like law and order. I don't know. <laughs> like it shows that you can have both, but I would say Bobby Watson used to use like quote the great drummer, Philly Joe Jones all the time is like, who would say the Dracula thing, like listen to them, the children of the night, what beautiful music they play or whatever, you know, <laughs> Like if you're a jazz musician, you're kind of a vampire. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's gotta be some of each. I, I don't think looking at jazz as one or the other is, is accurate because one doesn't really work without the other. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. I think you really answered the question. So, but do you think just from your answer, just from you, what you said, do you think possibly jazz expresses culture more organically (laughs) because it is in constant communication with well with what's going on right what's affecting people's lives and it is responding to that so it's always changing it's always evolving so is it more of an expression of you know not a stagnant expression but a more organic expression of musical culture i think on a macro level yes 
but on the on the micro level each artist is different and each artist experiences the world differently i mean we all do every person does with commonalities of course but if a musician doesn't have like i don't do drugs and i've never even seen heroin done around me i've been around places where it was being done but you know i'm not really a participant in 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 some of the qualities that i think certainly 50 years ago you know 60 years ago you would say well that is jazz culture right which is a bad thing that happened to a lot of jazz musicians are these assumptions but just because I don't participate in that kind of lifestyle, and I mean, hopefully for the rest of my life, I won't have to deal with the hardships associated with that. So when I listen to Charlie Parker or Billie Holiday or Miles Davis, people who did experience that on a very deep, destructive level, myself as a creative, as an artist, I can learn with empathy how they live their lives. And then that affects the way that I see the world, and then it affects how I, you know, share my story through my music. So it's not the same as them, but it's my personal thing. So, I mean, then that's just one person. So you can extrapolate that on every musician that their experiences are not going to be totally similar. But I think what jazz music does, and I mean, any great music, any great art, but specifically jazz, it allows the participant, whether the, it's the performer or the listener, the active listener, an opportunity to understand humanity on a deeper level. So that's not a direct answer to what you're posing, but, no, but- I, I feel like it's salient. <laughs> I don't think there is a, you know... Uh, black and white, you know, with a with a nice period at the end sentence that that, that would be a proper answer. It's it's a question of well, what do you think or when I say that, what it makes you think. So yeah, sure. So, but one one more question on this: Do you think that jazz is innately American? No, I don't. I think that when it started, it was. But I mean that that's just because just like any other folk music in any other place in the world Balkan folk music or something it, it just because that started you know elsewhere doesn't mean that there couldn't be someone totally passionate about it in I went uh, to a concert Patago- <laughs> what? here in Hamburg uh, of a French band who was playing Balkan <laughs> Yeah and I mean I think that like if somebody is really into it and really devotes their life to wanting to pursue that kind of music i think we're kind of past the point i mean not with everything but with stuff that's been around universally for a long time i i i feel like the the gatekeeping aspect of a lot of this including jazz music is sort of anachronistic i mean i when you mentioned earlier uh when you were reading my bio that i went to shanghai for a jazz education festival and there's a trumpet player there who is about my age, Lee Jashuan, I think his name is. And he had gone, he's from Shanghai, and he went to the University of North Texas, and then he moved back to Shanghai. And this guy played the absolute lacquer off the trumpet. He was amazing. And he swung hard, and he played the blues, and he did all the stuff that you expect a great jazz musician to do. And he's one of thousands of probably a million musicians from different 
maybe not a million. I don't know how many jazz musicians there are, but you know, he absolutely could have been born in New York or Kansas City or wherever. And for someone to say that jazz music is only American, I think that that's unnecessary gatekeeping because it's been around for over a hundred years. Practitioners are here and there and, and everywhere and being born this very moment. So no, Th- that's the long answer. The short answer is no, <laughs> it's not anymore. It is, it came from America. I think that that's important. And even in America, it came from black America. And as a white American, I not for a minute of the day, do I forget where this music came from and the roots and the importance and how I am being allowed to participate in this music that was created not by me in some instances in the face of oppression by people like me, but I am allowed to participate in this, you know, because I, I, I try to do it with integrity and I, I understand where it came from. I think that that part of it is important, but it's, it's, it's certainly, I don't think there's a requirement for where you were born to, to participate in this music. Cause I think it was Louis Armstrong said that like jazz is a gift given to everyone, you know? Mm-hmm. So I know your passion is Kansas city jazz and I've wait, I've made you wait long enough now to oh, no. talk about that. So, so let's talk about Kansas city jazz and the works of the Kansas city jazz orchestra. Sure. I will just let you talk about it. How does Kansas City jazz, uh, how is it different from New Orleans jazz? Tell us about the beginnings of the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra. I know you guys do amazing work also with uh, students, with the public, with uh, you travel internationally. So having spent time in Kansas City recently, you have this amazing reputation for bringing amazing experiences and amazing music to the public. So I will just let you speak freely. (laughs) (laughs) Rev him up and let him go. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you to say. The Kansas City Jazz Orchestra, I'll start there. I mean, we're only, we're going into our 20th year. So we are definitely not the the longest tenured group in in Kansas City. So to be thought of that positively, I, I mean, humbly, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. But the music in general, when it started in New Orleans, and I, I sing that big four rhythm, right? That don't, 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 but don't, 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 don't. And then this kind of reverse Afro-Cuban kind of Caribbean cultures, you have a, a clave, which is what? Bop, 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 bop. This thing in, in New Orleans, they kind of turned it around a little bit. So you have this don't, 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 don't. You know, this like different kind of rhythm uh, the the New Orleans street beat, don't 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 with the with the bass drum, boom 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 ba don't boom that kind of thing. And rhythm always drives style of music. So that music kind of went to Louis Armstrong, King Oliver. They went up to Chicago, and then historically we look at that as being like a Chicago style Dixieland music, mm-hmm. right? And that's a little bit different, but still kind of informed by this New Orleans feel. And then in New York, you know, looking at Duke Ellington specifically, um, who is from Washington, D.C., but music up there, it had this kind of a, the rhythm was a two feel. Boom, 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 boom. And then over the top of it, it was very kind of ragtimey. And Ellington took a lot of the vocalizations from New Orleans and he 
he used those sounds in his band to create, you know, like a New York swing, like an early swing. And so when you listen to music like the Mooch or East St. Louis Toodaloo, you know, you kind of hear this bubble, 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 this kind of feel. In Kansas City, the rhythm was a little looser instead of that kind of two beat feel there it was a more of a four four so that's where you get that but that's where you get kind of the classic like rock and roll or boogie woogie bass line um that came out of kansas city so immediately that feel from like uh in in new orleans and boom 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 in new york now you have you've got that feel so it's a totally different vibe and then in kansas city along with that kind of different way of playing the blues they call it like stomp or whatever like that was the style of blues in kansas city and then the nature of Kansas City being this sort of, I mean, Becker would love this, I think, but like this kind of lawless sort of city that the government was presided over by this alderman. He wasn't the mayor or anything. His name was Tom Pendergast. And it was this corrupt political machine that, that I mean, on the level of like, New York in the in the mid 19th century with Boss Tweed and the kind of infamous corruption that was up there. Well, in Kansas City, it was really corrupt. And and the the main moneymaker for Pendergast and his cronies was anything to do with like vice, alcohol, prostitution, gambling, any of that stuff. So you would have a lot of nightclubs that participated in this sort of thing mm. and in the you know the 1920s and 1930s but specifically in the 20s it's, it's not like there was a, a jukebox or a dj right every club had to have a band and these bands like the, the clubs in kansas city they didn't have curfews right yep. so there were over 100 clubs that had over 100 bands well it's not like you could go from one gig to the next like if you had your gig and it might not end until four or five in the morning. So to do the thing like Ellington's band or the New York bands, Benny Goodman, those bands would do where they would play written out arrangements that would start at the beginning and end at the end. And really not a whole lot of like if it was a three minute and 20 second tune, it was it was pretty much three minutes and 20 seconds every time you played it, you know, with a lot of exceptions. But generally, you know, mm-hmm. and in Kansas City. I mean, you couldn't do that. You'd run out of music in four hours. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing for like seven hours or something, you got to come up with new ways to do it. And that's where uh, in Kansas City, these bands like the Basie Band or the Benny Moten Band or or Jay McShann or whatever, they would start playing these head arrangements, which is somebody would, they would decide on like a form with the blues or rhythm changes or and rhythm changes is like a, like the Flintstones, like, or I got rhythm. It's a 32 bar song form where you have one section and then that's repeated. And then there's a bridge, like a middle section. And then you go back to the first section. So like a, a, and then a B section, then the a section. Mm-hmm. And it's very simple. You know, the harmony works out. You can riff over it. And a riff is like a short 
musical phrase that you could like repeat easily or you could layer with other people playing a different riff. And so these bands in Kansas City, by nature of needing to play more music and, and keep things more open, they would just kind of play different riffs over a, over a blues tune for could be three minutes, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 20 minutes, you know, just to gauge how the dancers were feeling, if they were enjoying it. And then from night to night, they would remember, oh, yeah, last night you guys played. Let's play that again. Okay, yeah. So they would play that again. And then the brass would be like, beep, beep. Beep, 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 or whatever, and the trombones, they whatever trombones do. And <laughs> and then the rhythm section would be playing this kind of four-four, you know, doom, 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 doom. And Basie would play the piano the way he played it. And the guitar player would be comping, accompanying the way that he accompanied. And it was a very free kind of way to come up with music that could potentially last forever. And that kind of looseness. An improvisation coupled with the rhythm that was coming out of the, the bass and the drums and the guitar, that was infectious. It, and, and even like Benny Goodman's manager heard it on a, on a radio broadcast and was like, oh, I, uh, I got to get this bassy band up to New York. And so then the music spread to New York and, and really that rhythm and that style and that feel of playing that would permeate jazz music forever. Um, and that came out of Kansas city. And where would you place big band and bebop? How does, how would you fit that in there? So, I mean, big band to me, like something that it's almost functional in nature, right? In the depression dance halls were a big form of entertainment because you could go and, you know, it's not like you had to buy something or whatever. And radios as well, if you could afford a radio, like this is kind of cheaper forms of entertainment um, in the middle of the, the depression. And as the dance halls got more and more popular, and they took up more and more space to get more and more people in there. Well, you know, the bands had to get bigger to fill up that space. And so and the bigger the band you have, the more you need orchestrated music, unless you're the Basie band that was able to develop, or not just Basie, but, you know, other bands like that, that were able to develop their songs on the bandstand, writing arrangements became a big deal so that it didn't sound like a cacophonous mess. Mm. And that's where, like, Fletcher Henderson and Redman and, and uh, Ellington and all these different people came into being. And so as the big bands caught up with Kansas City and Louis Armstrong, that's where the swing era really started to take hold in the 30s. Um, like 1935, Benny Goodman played out the Palomar Ballroom in LA. Like it really was a catalyst for that popularity of that style to take off all the way, you know, through World War II. But as World War II was kind of raging on, the musicians in these big bands, they kind of felt like they were being told what to do all the time. And it was much more of an organization and an orchestral kind of thing. And so the great soloists in these big bands, after their gig was over, they would go to Minton's Playhouse or there was a jam session at a chili house or these different places and they would jam and it would be more mu music for the musicians where they would improvise and everybody would kind of play like a melody at the beginning and then just long strings of solos like a jam session. 
And eventually the clubs on 52nd Street in New York, um, they were basement clubs. And these smaller groups would go in there and play that style. And that's where bebop kind of came out of, you know, the, the soloist music, the improvisatory music that was not where the, I can't remember who said this quote, but it was like the soloists were free from the tyranny of popular taste, <laughs> you know, where they could improvise and, and, and be creative. And so bebop was in a sense, a revolution, but also an evolution out of uh, the big band swing tradition. And, um, and then it took its shape, the, you know, the more people played it. But I mean, it's really like bebop is just an onomatopoeia, right? That's where bebop came from. It was just the way the, the musical line sounded. Bebop came out of swing, I would say, and out of the big band tradition. How, how awesome must it be to have the opportunity to take part in your music appreciation class? I think everybody must. <laughs> oh, oh man, they fired me. I, they, they, they let me go. They, I was... I cost too much. So they hired somebody wow. at, the, at the bottom end of the pay scale. <laughs> oh, oh no. Well, you know, next time we're in Kansas city, I, I, I have to bring my children as well to the wonderful uh, Heltzberg hall, if I'm pronouncing it right. in Kaufman center, because you're in there, right? The, the, the Kansas city jazz orchestra is in Kaufman yeah. center. So. Yeah, we are. Yeah. That's, that's where we give, um, our, our main concert series and we, we play elsewhere as well, but I have a, you know, 12 and 10 year old daughters and they, they've been going to the concerts too. So definitely open for, uh, for kids of all ages, you know, well, we have a, we have 12 year old twins and an eight year old little girl, but there you go. <laughs> but the eight year old is going to get up and, and dance in the, in the aisles and stuff. So, yeah. well, well, and I mean, we'll I, <laughs> I recommend it. And if anybody gives you any trouble, uh, you should be like, well, that guy down there with the glasses, he said it was okay. He said it was fine. <laughs> yeah, my 10-year-old, is uh, she's a fledgling drummer. Um, oh. And okay. so I guess my dad was saying that she was sitting there at the last concert like air drumming. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Isn't that funny? I mean, our daughter, the 12-year-old, has just started with drums. So cool. she, she's <laughs> got a drum set for Christmas and she sits here and practices and does things that I could never dream of doing. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. The other two do, uh, the boy does, uh, guitar and the little one, whatever. I mean, kind of a little bit of everything <laughs> that she, she dances and sings. So that's, you know, yeah, that's her, that's her thing. So let me ask you in closing one last question. So I know that you traveled with the Kansas City Jazz Orchestra to Hanover, Germany, and mm -hmm. the podcast has uh, listeners in 30 plus countries, but one of our largest base is in Germany. So would you mind telling us about your experience in Hanover and how you and you, you mentioned as well earlier that you travel quite a bit to, to Germany. How is it for you to play for your for your band for your orchestra to play um, in the U S or to play, for example, specifically in Germany? Oh, wow. Well, when I say I travel a lot, I mean, a lot for me, I've been to Germany four times. It's not like that's probably a lot universally, but the experience in Hanover was, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of formative experiences that happen in your life. And that was along with a couple others where you really see how much this music that we die for, you know, we, we dedicate our lives to this music, how much it means to people 
in large numbers. And I mean, when I say how much it means, I don't mean like everybody's soaking up the history and the artistry. And I mean, it just a bunch of people coming to have a good time for sure. But that was so such a deep experience, I think, for everybody in this in this band that, that got to go over there. Because that, you know, I think it's called the Inner City Jazz Festival or Hanover something, Hanover Jazz Club. I mean, what, there were like 20, 40,000 people or something there in the, the square that we played in. And that's something that we never experienced. I mean, we have maybe 800 to 1,000 people at our concerts in the Coffin Center. And that seems like a ridiculous number a lot of times when you play a club that maybe 10 people show up in. But the the love and the passion and just the natural kind of inclination to enjoy the music. And there were a variety of styles. It wasn't just like there's a New Orleans band there. There was kind of a smooth jazz band. There was, you know, a singer. There was a gospel thing. They have a big thing for, I think, um, I can't remember what, the, but it seems like they have a big gospel festival the, the day before the jazz stuff starts. And, and then the response, you know, from folks like coming up to us and, and, and then definitely everyone that worked at that festival. I'm probably not accurate on the government hierarchy, but there were, I want to say there was a, a minister or a mayors or something, multiple mayors of culture and, and, and different things that you could tell that this music just meant so much to so many people in different ways. And that was just, it, it felt so good to, to, to see that and to experience that. And it's, it's really unlike anything that we have in the United States. In the United States, it's much more difficult to capture people's attention and imagination and desire to come see you. It's, it, it's I mean, I, in, in light of what's happening in the Ukraine, I don't, I don't mean this, you know, in a bad way, but it, 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 it feels like a battle, obviously not one where human lives are at stake, but in for our music and our livelihood, it is certainly more appealing elsewhere. And in Germany, maybe more than anywhere, we felt that really deeply. I, in, in the Netherlands, in China, um, kind of surprisingly in China, actually to me, but you know, there are other countries that are very warm and receptive to jazz music, but Germany holds it you know, very, very dear place in my heart, you know, because of, of, of the, the response that we've gotten. And then the, in the year that, oh, I don't remember when it was 2016, maybe I went there. When was the world cup? When was Germany in the world cup? Oh God. Uh, so it was when they won it, you mean? Yeah. 2014. Yeah. So because I was the over- smallest one was a baby, <laughs> she went <laughs> and saw the game and had her face painted. So that's why I know. <laughs> yeah, I was in Berlin that night. Oh, really? Yeah, by myself. Wow. And oh. you know, it was, I mean, aside from the usual, when I check into the hotel and the, the bell person looks at my passport and he goes, is that really your name? <laughs> um well, you know, you uh, haven't seen my name. So my last name is Runte, but it's spelled like Runt, Runty. But you know, uh-huh. so it's the same thing. You know, when I when <laughs> when we make a reservation in Kansas City, they're like um, Mrs. Mrs. Um, um, Runt. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I I I feel that so much. 
But, you know, like when I was there, I was down by the Brandenburg Gate where I think they had it kind of in concentric circles, right? There was a big watch party with a giant screen up and then you could. Public viewing, like, right? Yeah. And you, I, I couldn't get in past like it was already full to like a capacity on the on the near circle. But I went in in my I mean, everybody spoke English anyway, but I watched the the World Cup final in a pub and the people that I was standing next to, you know, you have conversation with or whatever. And I said that I was a jazz musician and I had a, a night before I went back home and wanted to spend it in Berlin. And, you know, these people, these the only people I talked to, they're like, oh, we love jazz. Have you ever heard of da 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 da? Like, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I could go to any bar in Kansas City or anywhere in the world and I bring up jazz and it would take 316 people before somebody's like, oh, I know jazz. It's like the first person I talked to in Berlin was like, oh, jazz. So, and they um, say Germans are cold. Oh, it's ridiculous. No way. <laughs> So that, I mean, that's- But I find that as well. I find find Germans, um, well, first of all, very open to American culture and to Americans. I mean, not always. There have been times of when I've been here through political movements where I was, (laughs) but in general, very much, very open. And if you are open, they are super friendly. So I, I find oh that everywhere. I find that everywhere. So yeah. So the, so yeah. That I mean that that was totally my experience. Just warm, open, and it comes across. You know, every, the the four times I've been there to play jazz music. You know, just so thankful for those opportunities, and can't wait to get back and and do it again. Wonderful, Clint. Any last remarks? No, I, I will say that Lothar Christ, who is the director of the Hanover group, they're coming to Kansas City and we'll be playing a, a co-concert with us in the fall. We're really looking forward to that. And I don't know if he listens or if they listen, but we're sure going to try and practice really hard because we know they're going to come in and sound great. So looking forward to that. And just in general, just thank you for for wanting to talk about this music and and it was a great conversation. I feel like I talked way too much, but. No, no, it was great. You were a great guest. And I mean, you know, really uh, when you were sort of demonstrating the music, I, I, I had like, you know, my face hurts. I was just like, this is, this is so cool. <laughs> so thank you very much. I think the listeners will, will get an absolute kick out of it as well. Thank you. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.